Straight from the Mayor's Mouth, with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council. Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of Straight from the Mayor's Mouth. Our regular host Mark Barnes spoke to everyone last week and said that he'd be away for the rest of the year. And so for the end of year review, for a look back over the year, I thought I'd ask the Deputy Mayor, Richard Ivey, to come along while we reflect on what's happened over 2023. So welcome along, Richard, and thank you for coming along. Thanks very much, Matt. Great to be here. Thank you. So one of the things that I thought about was we'll have a bit of a chat, and I've broken up the year, and we've had a bit of a chat about it, Richard, into a few different categories and a few different ideas to just give people a bit of an idea of what's happened, because it's amazing when you think back. So at the beginning of the year, if you think back to the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023, what was the number one thing that you were being asked about by residents? Oh, the aftermath of the flooding, from mainly from November 22, but the damage that it did to roads and infrastructure generally, the things that really did affect our residents. That's what they were interested in. What are we going to do about this damage that's been incurred? And that's exactly right. I was exactly the same. People would ring me, they'd email me, they'd contact me and say, potholes this, potholes that, and that was fine. That was what we're there for, to take the feedback. But there was no doubt about it that our roads were severely damaged and the roads across the state, the roads across the eastern seaboard were severely damaged. So that certainly had a a major impact. The other thing I think that I was being asked about a little bit at the beginning of the year, not anywhere near the same level as the roads, but was our Macquarie River North and South Precinct Master Plan. There were a few people who were interested in that. That was probably more a Dubbo thing more than a Wellington thing. You would have heard about the roads from Wellington people. But that was certainly a major issue that people were asking about at the time and something that they were concerned about. They had various things that they wanted to see come out of that. But again, it's amazing when you look back 12 months later, there's no one talking about that now. We've got the master plan in place and we've got something to work towards. So things do change pretty quickly. And it's a good example there. I think people are interested. They ask questions. They want to know. Once they've been given some information and uh, realise that there is a plan and that there is some information out there that they can look at, then that tends to satisfy people. And uh, quite rightly, then they start to look at uh, other issues. And I think you're right. One of the things that I often talk about is the fact that you can't always give people an answer that they want to hear. In other words, they're not always going to agree with your answer, but at least they appreciate that they get the information. I think that's one of our important jobs is to make sure people get the information. But let's start on infrastructure. Let's talk about, we've talked about the roads a little bit, but talk about some of the infrastructure projects that we've seen throughout the year, some of the things that have been improved, changed, modified, etc., from an infrastructure perspective, because again, sometimes when you talk to people about what's happening in a community, they're often talking about the things that are being built, the shiny things that are being built. And even though we've spent a lot of time fixing roads, we've still managed to do a few other things from an infrastructure perspective. So what are the things that stick out for you? Well, the, uh, the, the infrastructure that uh, is probably very important, again, perhaps from a, uh, uh, a Wellington's perspective, is the damage that uh, was done to some of our sporting facilities in the Pioneer Park uh, precinct and uh, the damage along the Bell River there, uh, not just uh, to the damage to the river, but the effect that it had on that whole uh, sporting precinct of Pioneer Park. And uh, yes, there was some planning had to go into that, but now we're already seeing some benefits from Uh, that planning and some of the infrastructure which is being uh, conducted as we speak along that area now, which is really very good. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that's one of those great examples. What we've tried to do, it's not always possible, what we've tried to do is get to the point where we take infrastructure that was damaged by flooding 
and improve it. And so the road that used to loop around Pioneer Park there, obviously we've changed that structure, the way that's set up there. So hopefully you don't get the next flood, which we're pretty sure there'll be another one, where you mm. don't get that next flood doing all that damage to those roads. And that's a really important focus that we've tried to do to make sure we improve things when we do repair them. Yes. The, uh, one of the things too which I, I found very interesting through the year uh, as councillors, we took, undertook an inspection of the Heritage Plaza area in front of the old Dubbo Jail and just some of the plans that have been made for that and again some of the work that's been undertaken, that really will end up being a fantastic precinct and already I think it's starting to, to take shape as that and uh, it's really something which I think the, the, the residents, not just of Dubbo City but of the whole uh, LGA will really get the benefit of. Yeah. And that's certainly a good tourist attraction for us, and that'll keep improving that. And that's probably taken a bit longer than we would have liked it to have taken. And they found a few more things when they removed that car park, the old bitumen car park there. Maybe they went a bit deeper than we would have liked them to have gone, but we found extra things. So that'll be all adding to the overall history and give more information about that. So I'm really keen to see that one finished, definitely. So other things that stuck out for you from an the, infrastructure perspective? Uh, again, just the, uh, the uh, again, a new councillor. I was uh, used to using the, uh, the pre- previous council chambers and, of course, with them really not being fit for purpose uh, through the access and uh, uh, the, the need to establish the new council chambers at the ground floor of the, council, of the uh, administration building. And uh, that's only a, a small thing, I guess, but really it's really uh, in the whole uh, scheme of uh, council operation, it is quite a significant. Yeah, I think you're right. And I certainly had some feedback from some former councillors who weren't very happy about the change in that location with all the history associated with the old council chamber. But it was a practical move which allowed that area upstairs at council to be used for everyday purposes because in the past it had been used twice a month. It's a large area to Mm. keep there for twice a month. And when we're trying to make our organisation as efficient as possible, having a multi-use environment with the council chamber I think is okay. And we sit there, Richard, and I don't think any of us sits around there and says, well, this isn't as significant an area as the last area. We won't make good decisions now. Mm. We still are making decisions with the best knowledge and with the best intent. So it doesn't change that. It doesn't look as flash, but it's a practical outcome. So I agree with you. I think it's a practical, good step forward. Yeah, the, uh, the 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 challenge now will be, of course, is to effectively use the area that the, the old council chambers used to occupy. But that's uh, that's for another day yet. Yeah, that's right, exactly right. So the Duke of Wellington Bridge, obviously, is probably one that's dear to your heart from a Wellington perspective. Yes, that that's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Uh, the where we get mammoth uh, damage from flooding but not actually to the bridge structure itself. The, the, the bridge structure retained its integrity and certainly was no damage at all. But, of course, a bridge is no good unless you can get to it by the <laughs> access roads, and uh, that's where the damage was. And so you think, oh, well, let's just repair the, da- the access road. But, of course, it's a domino effect. You can't just uh, repair the access road without uh, fixing the, the stabilisation of the banks of the Bell River, and that is a major, major project. But, yeah. uh, again, so councillors, council we've submitted the application for uh, uh, repair works uh, that really will be a major, major project. But uh, if that uh, pro- if that uh, funding comes through and we can pr- uh, repair the uh, both the riverbanks and also the approaches to the bridge, again, it will be a fantastic facility. Well, and again, long term, that will be good so that there'll be enough work done on the confluence there of the Bell River and the Macquarie River that it won't happen again in the near future. But we are talking over $20 million for that. So if we don't get funding from somewhere external, I'm just not sure that council's got the funding for that. So that'll be a really interesting conversation Mm. if we don't 
uh, well, we're not successful in some of those funding applications. We'll have to look for other funding processes, but it would be nice to see that return to its former glory, but it's it's a, a process and a half at the a- moment. Absolutely. So I think we'll uh, that'll be a topic of conversation for another day. But perhaps on a more positive uh, uh, area too is the, is the repairs and the upgrade to Sheraton Road. Uh, that really has been a, a major event and a major achievement through the year. Yeah, that's right. And that was one of those things that it wasn't obvious that it was a major problem until something else good happened when we opened up Boundary Road, which had been a, a long time coming. Then suddenly people could access that Sheraton Road area. And we're talking about schools, we're talking about Bunnings, a few different areas there. And then suddenly people could access it from two directions. Happy days. It all sounds like good news. But it turned out to be not such good news because once people started accessing that, then they realised that a part of Sheraton Road was fairly damaged, mm. probably mainly from the quarry that's nearby, from some of the heavy trucks that went along there. So that involved some meetings with some of the schools there just to make sure we were talking to them about what was happening. And we don't want to spend a lot of money on that area because obviously the trucks from the quarry are still going along there. We've got a bit of a stage process there to get those trucks off that road, go up through Blue Ridge and then do some major repair works. But at least we've done some minor repair works and it's made it a lot better. But the other thing I think that's significant there, Richard, is that pathway alongside Sheraton Road. So at least some of the kids that are going up to school there on bikes or walking, they've got somewhere much safer to go than on the road. So that was a bit of a process to get that one, but I think we've made some pretty good progress on that one in particular. Yes, the outcome for that uh, has been uh, re- really, really good. Uh, the other, Another good outcome, I think, from a region particularly, and but uh, uh, is just the uh, introduction and, and the spread of EV charging stations for electric vehicles. Uh, in conjunction with the state government, council has uh, installed a number of uh, charging stations through the area. And uh, again, from a Wellington perspective, we've got two at the library car park and two out at the caves complex. And look, they are really a very good idea, particularly say the caves com- uh, complex. There are two charging stations there so that's encouraging people to perhaps go and visit the caves to uh, to have, have a look at the uh, display there and have lunch there while their cars are being recharged and uh, that's the that's what the, the state government uh, made that incentive uh, funding to do and I think it's been very successful and council's been very uh, uh, good in picking that up and, and running with it yeah and again dwell time if we can keep people in our LGA a bit longer, just keep them staying, maybe one extra night. We've already got them here. We can keep them here longer. That means we're injecting more money into the economy. So that is a really good thing. The other one that I think has been a fair bit of discussion from an infrastructure perspective through the year is Saxa Road and the weak point in Saxa Road at the moment, which is the Coomabella Crossing on Mitchell Creek. So there's a bit of progress that's been made there. Yes, that's been a real uh, issue, hasn't it? And it really is quite... It's one of the interesting things about being on council. I think it makes you realise that uh, a particular uh, issue may be quite complex uh, once you really delve into it. And that Saxa Road issue, which really is more than just a a local road. It's it's almost a state road uh, because uh, of a lot of the traffic that's going down it from uh, the northern part of New South Wales into into central, into the Tablelands. Uh, So it's not just... uh, a road of value to our LGA. It's it's much bigger than that, but yet uh, council has responsibility for uh, the improvement and the uh, and the restoration of some of the problems. And as you say, the crossing across the uh, uh, the uh, at Coomabella across Spices Creek has been a major issue. Yeah, it has been, and I think Saxa Road now is in reasonable condition. 
but you've still got that weak point there. And when you talk about some of the complexities there, you've got that particular crossing. And then if we were to do anything there in that crossing, we've got to get permission from various state government departments, including fisheries. And that becomes a problem then because they don't like you doing anything in the waterway. So we're going ahead with a bridge there, but it's just not as quick as we would like, obviously. But tenders are out at the moment as we speak. They close on the 19th of January. Then we'll make a decision in February at our February council meeting about who will win that tender. But I still would suggest it's probably the end of April 2025 before we'll see a bridge across that Mitchell Creek area there, which then will allow Saxa Road to be used as it was in the past. So there's still some time away from a solution. Yes. And, and look, that's at some time. And, and, and as you say, that while we're sitting here now, uh, it, it's uh, becoming very obvious that it's a long time. But, but, you know, if by middle of 25, we have a very good state-of-the-art crossing uh, that's right, fit for purpose for the next 100 years plus, then maybe uh, correct, the time taken to correctly plan it, to fund it and to build it, uh, really in the overall uh, scheme of things, is not so bad. Yeah. Now, one of the things I think is important while we talk about infrastructure, and, and I'll come back to a few more infrastructure projects in a moment, but one of the things that I think will be a absolute huge advantage from Dubbo Regional Council being part of the Central West Orana Renewable Energy Zone is we'll have more money for a range of things. Now, I would hate to see some of the money we receive as a result of being in the res just go to roads. I think there's other money that can be used for roads, but there are other projects that I think we could use for some of these road infrastructure and just general infrastructure. So we've got a few things happening there. Obviously, the res, just go back a couple of steps, it was initially announced as a three gigawatt res around the three local government areas, Midwestern Regional Council, Warren Bungle Shire Council and Dubbo Regional Council, mainly in the old Wellington Shire Council area. And people have seen Parts of renewable energy happening already with the Bedangra Wind Farm. If I'm being technical, that's not part of the res, but it doesn't really matter. It's all part of that whole renewable area there that people are seeing. But that's been upgraded now from 3 gigawatts to 6 gigawatts. That announcement was only made a couple of days ago. And so the first thing we think of is there'll be lots of money coming in from the various proponents. But the tricky part is planning agreements. And so what's been your impression of some of those planning agreements so far? Yes, well, the, the planning agreements process has been very interesting uh, as we realise that most of these uh, projects, well, all these projects we're talking about are state-significant projects, so they are uh, under the auspices of the state government. But uh, the, I think the uh, council has been very effective in getting the proponents to realise that they are part of a community. The community is being affected by the development of these renewables, uh, which you know, overall uh, a good thing for our society and our uh, the, the, the world in which we live, but undoubtedly they're having effect on the local residents. And the, I think there is, uh, the council has been very successful in uh, increasing the awareness of the need for communities to get some benefit out of these, some direct benefits out of these renewables that are being developed. And uh, uh, these planning agreements that we're talking about uh, uh, have been been uh, so far um, uh, effective. We've still got uh, uh, a fair way to go to make the, to see the money and see the benefits flow to the community. But the uh, improvements that we've got in the in the attitudes uh, exhibited by the proponents, I think, has been quite uh, definite. Yeah, it has been, and we've of course developed that framework, which I would say is nation leading. In fact, I've been to Canberra. I've met with a department, one of the departments in Canberra, and they wanted to see our framework because they wanted to see how they might apply that to other projects across the nation. So that's where we've got that 1.5% of the capital investment value. 
paid to council for a community benefit fund over the effective life of the project there. So that's something that we've worked hard on and we haven't always been successful with the 1.5%, but that's our target, that's what we're aiming towards and I think that would deliver some good money to our community. And it's fair to say that some companies have been better to deal with than others and I won't name any names, of course, but some companies get it, some companies say, well, we think this is good for the community. Other companies say, well, why am I giving away money? I don't have to give it away. Mm. So for my shareholders, I'm not going to give that away. So it's been an interesting process in there, but we'll keep working on them and keep trying to hold them to some sort of community outcomes, whether that be just with cash or whether it be the way they engage with the community and and try and participate in the community, even having employees. Employees that sit in a Sydney office, for example, why can't they be sitting in an office in Wellington? They're probably sitting in front of a computer and using a phone. They could sit anywhere. So it's those other subtle things as well. And I think one of the things that Council's been quite uh, successful in is bridging the the, the divide, if you like, between um, wind farms and solar farms. Now, historically uh, what happened with, there was a lot of opposition to the establishment of wind farms and so the state government came along and said, okay, as part of establishing a wind farm, uh, the proponents must provide a community benefit fund, whereas that same uh, condition didn't apply to solar uh, farm development. And really in many ways, uh, solar farms have more effect on the local community than do wind farms. Uh, But we had a situation where it was uh, obligatory for wind farms to to provide funding for communities but not so for solar farms but uh, now going forward I think that uh, recognition has uh, been uh, acknowledged by solar farm and battery farm development so that they are willing to provide such funding for communities. And I've talked to a lot of different ministers, a lot of people engaged in this whole process and I've always said so explain to me in simple terms why you don't have these in place for solar and you have them in place for wind. And no one really can give a definitive answer. I understand the historical perspective that you've just given there. But now in today's environment, mm. it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we're working on that, not always with perfect success, but we'll keep working towards that because we'd like all of them to be contributing to the local economy in a whole range of different ways. Yeah, and I think we've got some very good uh, traction for, uh, again, without naming names, but uh, in the Wellington area, a couple of the large... Uh, scale battery storage uh, uh, infrastructures to be installed. Now, they, uh, the proponents of that didn't have an obligation to provide a community benefit fund, but uh, by discussions with council, uh, I think we've achieved a, a very good uh, win-win situation where they, uh, proponents, get some benefits, uh, some some recognition of the benefits by the community, and the community gets some dollars. So I think that's been a, a very good uh, outcome. Yeah, that's right. And I suppose the other one that's worthwhile mentioning is the recent announcement by the Minister Penny Sharp who talked about the $128 million that was announced over the next four years for the three local government areas that I mentioned previously in our res. And that's really determined or really the focus of that is to give a forward payment on the money that will flow through. So rather than wait until some of these projects are running, wait until Energy Co has got energy running through their power lines, they've said, well, let's start paying some of that money early. Now, we haven't got an announcement yet about the first lot of that. I'm expecting at least $10 million in, say, January to be announced for our council area in the first year to be able to be used for a variety of different projects. But it wouldn't surprise me if it was high as $15 million in that first lot there. So that's Mm. a good forward payment as well. People will start to see projects on the ground and start to say, wow, this 
renewable energy zone, it's been a bit pie in the sky up until this stage, but we're seeing the results and we're seeing the real benefits for that. And and part of the benefits too, I, I think, has been the engagement with the communities. As you say, uh, people have, uh, up until now have sort of seen these renewable energy uh, projects develop, but really there's been nothing tangible in benefits to the community. But now with the talk of this money coming through, uh, the, again, there's much more engagement with local communities, with uh, suggestions as to what uh, where they want this uh, their their regions to develop uh, using some of these f- the funding, and and that's been I think we really have seen a coming together of the community to try to make sure that out of these renewables we have a, a, a legacy. We don't just have uh, something that in twenty five years we say well there's a bit of money came in and now it's all flitted away. We really do want to make sure that at twenty five years we have a legacy uh, that remains from this renewable developments which we are seeing right here and now. And I, that's one of the things I have talked about often that we'll look back in 20 years time and if we've done our job correctly as councillors today we'll say that Wellington has been dramatically transformed for the positive as a result of these projects and that's the real challenge for us to make sure we take advantage of that. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, you go. And just with that, uh, I, I think another one of the sort of allied good things about it is the uh, advantage has been I think of the integration of the whole LGA that really a lot of these renewable developments going on in the eastern part of our LGA, the old Wellington Shire area, but and, and, and it's good that that area will get some development, but you know, Dubbo is the major service centre, the Dubbo City is the major service city uh, centre and uh, it will, pro- pro- uh, it will um, also uh, receive some benefits from this development, lots of benefits because naturally that's where a, a lot of the uh, service and the infrastructure will come from and so it's really a good it's a it's a win-win situation between the the the, the city of Dubbo and the surrounding LGA area. It's probably fair to say that maybe it wouldn't have worked so well this res if Dubbo wasn't involved in that because I think Dubbo does offer some advantages to the process if it was only the old Wellington Shire Council it may not have been able to take full advantage of that and I'm not trying to be harsh on the previous council but it it may not have been able to access all the resources that Dubbo can. Oh, I think that's exactly right, and uh, you know it's it's a classic situation of what's good for that uh, uh, old Wellington Shire Council area uh, will be good for Dubbo, and I think so. And, and the integration that you get by having both those areas under one uh, local government area, I think, is is not to be uh, underestimated. Mm. So if I just move back into infrastructure for a moment, I can't talk about infrastructure without talking about. The 3D printed (laughs) toilets or amenity block in the Macquarie Lions Park West, which I still think is a fantastic project and the majority of people think it's a fantastic project. There have been some people who have been somewhat critical of it for reasons that uh, I don't really understand. I don't really understand some of the commentary around that. But that really has been nation leading and, well, it's been nation leading to the point that no other government at local, state or federal has actually used 3D printing to create a bit of public infrastructure. But the number of people that we've had talk to us about that, approach us about that, have come and had a look at it. We've had ministers coming along from the state government. We've had the federal government interested, housing ministers interested in how they can solve the housing crisis, architects. It's quite incredible. And I actually joked at the time when it was being built, 
if we only charged ten dollars a head as a spectator fee, I reckon we would have paid for the cost of the toilets there. <laughs> but we're still getting now people coming along and looking at it and really interested by it. So I think that's been a really positive move by council. Oh, absolutely. And uh, as you say, the, uh, the the innovation and the opportunity to test the whole idea to uh, see where it might uh, be extended to, whether we can build houses or commercial storage areas or whatever it might be. The fact that uh, Dubbo Regional Council has taken the initiative, it's willing to try something. Uh, there may be some lessons learned out of it uh, with the uh, design or with the uh, actual uh, uh, the, the process of building it, but just those lessons are going to be invaluable. And uh, I think in some form or another, 3D printing of infrastructure is here to stay. And uh, here we were, Dubbo Regional Council being at the forefront of the development of that. And I know for a fact that already the Aboriginal Housing Office is at the point where they're ready to do 3D printing of it, at least one duplex that I'm aware of in Dubbo next year. And I've got other developers that have already spoken to me about how they can build multiple homes in Dubbo with 3D printing. Because one of the things we had to do in that process was we had to ask our planning team to make sure that we could actually give approvals for 3D printed housing when those applications came in because it was all very new. So most people looking at doing it with 3D printed housing are looking at Dubbo as a leader in this area. So I think a fantastic outcome and certainly from a cost perspective and a time perspective, both very positive, but also a way to try and innovate and do something different. So I'll run through very quickly just a few other infrastructure projects I thought were important throughout the year and we'll move on to another general topic if you like, but the Shared Pathway Project which is well underway at the moment behind Bly Street. That'll be finished by about March next year. And we should have the funding set up in a way that we can create that events precinct on Ollie Robin Dover as well. So that's all good from that perspective. We've also got the Cameron Park Playground Fence, if you remember the <laughs> discussion around that day in Wellington. And I'm not sure where you sit on that, but we've resolved as a council to go ahead with that. But again, that's one of those things that it was a resolution from the former council. We needed to finalise that and tidy it up. We went out with a survey and then made a decision on that. It, it's a pretty good example, I think, of uh, the... the uh the, the area that you get uh, and, and the need to, one, go to pu- public consultation and, secondly, just to make a decision uh, in the best interests of, of the particular project. And I think this was a, a good example where the, the uh, resolution was to uh, that a fence be built but that it be subject to subject to public consultation and, uh, really, the fence should have been built in the first place. Uh, <laughs> the, the public consultation came back unanimously, almost unanimously, saying build the fence. Yeah. I think council probably should have just taken the initiative and built it. Now, I personally uh, think that it's perhaps a pity to have a, a playground there that's surrounded by a fence, but, you know, look, it's close to a, a major highway. Um, you can't just have uh, children running backwards and forwards from the playground to some picnic tables or something. I think you need, do need a fence for public safety. Yeah, so we've also got the Booth and Bar Road upgrade that occurred out near the Dover Regional Livestock's intersection. Benelong Bridge, we had a bit of an issue there where once we started looking at replacing that, we found that it didn't have enough structural integrity to handle and they over 15 tonnes, we fix it up and then obviously we'll go ahead with the replacement of that. Even little things, Broccolo's Playground, that's been one that's been bubbling away for a while. Some lights down at the John McGraw Ovals, which is where they play touch footy. Netball court resurfacing, our northern Ballfield pipeline, which will help us have water security as we go forward. And things like the showground lights, LED lights, good money we've got from a lot of these projects, for a lot of these projects from the state government. And one of the ones that obviously is important to a lot of people is that we awarded the tender for 
for the fluoride dosing system for the Dubbo Water Treatment Plan. Of course, we've had no fluoride in our water since 2019, since the beginning of 2019, mm. and that'll finally be fixed at some stage early next year once that fluoride dosing system is fully installed. Yes. Um you touched on Matt just the, uh, the the water security and the uh, the bore development both in uh, Dubbo and Wellington and really I, I think that shouldn't be underestimated uh, that what's that the bore development in those both the Wellington and Dubbo is really ensuring that both uh, towns have adequate water during times of drought and that is really going to be a major economic and uh, tourism selling point if we can go to the situation where even in short uh, periods of, of uh, drought conditions, we have got absolutely 100% guarantee of an adequate water supply. That is a major, major issue. I think it's a what I'd call a competitive advantage. Our mm. city will have mm. a competitive advantage mm. over other locations. So just to finish off, we're going ahead with the intersection on the new Dubbo Bridge approach connecting to the northwest urban release area. We've got the Wheelers Lane Stage 1 completed and we're doing some more work on Wheelers Lane or just finished some more work there. And then the last one I want to finish off with was the Tracker Riley pathway upgrade. Again, this is an erosion issue as water comes down the Macquarie past the Tenworth Street pedestrian bridge. As it turns the corner to the left, then there's some erosion that's occurred there, which got a bit close to the Tracker Riley path there. So we've had to move that path, concrete that path. I just want to put a, a full stop to some of the rumours, Richard. That concrete path has been put in place for those issues around erosion, not to improve my park run times, although it has improved my park run times as well, but that wasn't the main purpose for doing that. So there's been some people who have, have said that that's the only reason that uh, apparently I went ahead and did that was to make sure I improved my park run times. Those people obviously don't understand how a vote of council works, that I've only got one vote on council. And, and the other thing is, yes, it might have, uh, the whole thing about a park run, it's competitive, but uh, or part of it's competitive, and if it improves your time, it improves everyone else's time. <laughs> that's right. I, I haven't been able to say to the rest of the park runners, you go and run on the old dirt path over there near the edge that might collapse one day and I'll go and run on the nice new concrete yeah, path. Yeah. That gives us a bit of a snapshot of some of the infrastructure and some of the things involving infrastructure throughout the year. I thought it would be good to talk about some of the events that we've seen in the Dubbo Regional Council local government area over the last year. And these aren't necessarily events that we run or that we support, although we do find that we do support a lot of events, but probably a big part of the support is by having the facilities in place to be able to support these events. So it's uh, important for council to have the right grounds, to have the right economic environment, to have motels, not that we own motels, but to have motels and hospitality, to have Dubbo running well as a local government area. And if we can do that, it's much easier for any organisation to say, we'd like to bring an event to Dubbo. So again, put the pressure on you here. Some of the events, what are some of the things that you've seen this year that have really grabbed your attention or really captured the imagination of what we should be doing with bringing people out here? Well, perhaps it's more of a, a sporting event, but certainly the Dubbo Stampede. Uh, you know, that, that is a major event. It attracts a, a lot of uh, publicity, a lot of attention. I think we had uh, something like 1,300 uh, finishes in that event. Not, I don't know how many starters there were, but certainly 1,300 finish, finishes. And really to have uh, that sort of involvement, uh, again, not just on council facilities or anything like that, but uh, certainly council did, uh, and, the, and the infrastructure, and facilities within Dubbo does uh, does enable that to happen. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that involves a zoo, that involves Tracker Riley, so great work from the zoo, great work from Tracker Riley. And I've, I've run different 
lengths and different events in that particular event over the year or the various years. I ran the half marathon this year. I'm maybe getting a bit too old or a bit not enough time on my hands to train for a full marathon anymore, but ran the half marathon. But just the event as a well-organized event and as something that really captures people's imagination, I think you're spot on. It was a really positive event for Dubbo. So what else grabbed your attention? The uh, Again, from a, a Wellington perspective, one of the very important events or two of the important events that uh, occurred, uh, again, with uh, through Wellington Arts, so that get indirectly get some sponsorship from uh, the council. But Wellington and Arts have put on two very successful art exhibitions involving inmates at the Macquarie Correctional Centre. Uh, one uh, the, uh, was a, a public exhibition in the uh, uh, Wellington Arts building in Wellington uh, entitled uh, Con Artists and the other one was actually an exhibition at the uh, Macquarie uh, uh, Correctional Centre uh, called Inside Art and they really did attracted a lot of publicity it attracted a lot of visitors and the quality of art and the whole concept was really it's really has been a fantastic uh, uh, event or two events and I think with a name like Con Artist very clever <laughs> it was worth going to see that event just based on the name alone I thought so that was a very well done from that perspective of course you've got some traditional one in Wellington, ones that have been going for a long time. The Wellington Boot, for example, has been going for a long time, and that's obviously really good for Wellington and brings a lot of people to the community. Yes, the Wellington Boot and and, and also the Wellington Vintage Fair, uh, again using uh, the showground facilities, uh, uh, which council has uh, responsibility for, and and they are sort of major events at bringing visitors to the town as well as providing entertainment and uh, to the locals. But certainly, it, it increases the recognition of our area on a much wider field. And one that's a bit near and dear to my heart, well actually two near and dear to my heart, Stuart Town, for a very small community, Stuart Town is very active, there are lots of people there really trying to drive Stuart Town forward. Yes, the uh, two events there, the uh, the Man from Ironbark and also the Stuart Town Multicultural event, uh, just again uh, attracting people from outside the area as well as uh, many, many locals. And people would be amazed if they just came upon Stuart Town one day, looked on the map, looked at the population, and they turned up on one of those days was on, they'd be going, where have all these people come from? So very well-organised events. And again, I just love the fact that there are people out here in the community all over the place, not just in Stuart Town, but all over the place in our LGA that are really focused on driving the community forward. So that's been impressive. Another event that brings a lot of people around the Wellington area, of course, and, and you've been out to this before, is the Burundong Easter Fishing Classic. So yeah. that just seems like a, a fantastic event. Yes, it is. And obviously uh, during the period of the drought when the dam was down, it wasn't so uh, well attended. But since the uh, breaking of the drought and the dam's been full, it is a major, major event. And uh, certainly the fishing fraternity are, are a, uh, a, a well-established and uh, much-supported uh, organi- group of people and they are so enthusiastic and so committed to their fishing and it's just a, a fantastic uh, opportunity for them and us uh, in, the, in the area to use the facility of the Burundong Dam. And we talk about our new multicultural community that we're getting now, 18.5% of our LGA were born overseas, so we are getting a different flavour, but Fong Lee's Lane is a great event that's been going for some time as well and really focuses or highlights that multicultural community that we have. 
Yes, it does. I mean, again, uh, Wellington has a fantastic heritage of both of Indigenous and the Chinese uh, through the, the gold uh, exploration and gold uh, uh, gold fields during the early days of uh, establishment. And, and the Fonglees Lane helps celebrate that. It really is a, a, a great uh, local event. It's pretty hard to find a weekend that's free when there's not something on in the community if someone is planning an event because we just have so many different events. The but- Stedford, both the Wellington and Stedford and the city of Dubbo and Stedford go for many weeks and some of those volunteers are real troopers because it's a lot of work to organise here Stedford and the performers do a lot mm. of work getting prepared for it but all the work that's gone on for many months with that of Stedford is quite incredible so well done to both of those communities or committees that do so much work yeah. there. And certainly Dubbo uh, has been and it always has uh, been because it's such a central uh, uh, city that it's great at attracting a lot of national events. We've had the, the National Merino Ram Show, we've had the National Pole Hereford show, uh, the National uh, Ranch Sorting uh, Finals, uh, the Shorthorn Show. Uh, again, to uh, for for a uh, local community to be able to host national events like that, it really is fantastic. And it even went further this year. I went out to the airport for the International Aerial Firefighting Conference, and I thought the international uh, is it just them putting their weights up, the conference organisers, and trying to make it sound impressive. But I walked in to the welcome function there and I talked to someone, the first person I met was someone from the US of A, then I met someone from the UK, then I met someone from Canada, and I got a bit of a flavour from people there. So it definitely was a full international conference. They run this conference at different parts around the world each year. And so throughout 2023, they held one of their conferences in Seattle, one of them in Greece and one of them in Dubbo. So it did really have an international flavour. And again, when you see what's out there at the airport with that emergency services precinct now, the Rural Fire Service uh, Aviation Centre of Excellence only just opened during the week, you get a feel that that is a really important part for Dubbo as well. So bringing international conferences is really important as well. Yes, and, and, and as you say, that's a, a, in your introductory remarks, you mentioned that uh, a lot of these uh, uh, events aren't Dubbo Regional Council events, but certainly what the council does has and ha- has done over the years has enabled these events to take place. And uh, the development out at the airport precinct is a good example. I think council has been very proactive and very effective in coordinating and promoting that development. Yeah, and we do actually get a lot of our injection in our economy through lots of events, small conferences even, not necessarily always big international aerial firefighting conferences, but conferences that have 50 or 100 people staying for a few days and it's a regular process. So we do get things just that seem a bit insignificant in the whole scheme of things, but they keep adding. So, for example, New South Wales Biennial Weeds Conference was held in Dubbo. It doesn't sound that exciting, but it brought another 50 or 100 people to Dubbo. So you get constant things like that. Irana Caravan Camping, four-wheel drive and fish show, that's a, a big show, brings a lot of people around. And even just people that are focused on certain outcomes under the western skies is a great event. The people that are very focused on what they like and they put on an event with passion and then people yeah. come along and see it. The other one I want to mention, along with the Dubbo Stampede, was the Titan Macquarie Mud Run. Now, I haven't ever gone in the mud run. I I don't get that excited by the idea of running around and playing in the mud. The Stampede, I can live with that one. But there are a lot of people who come along to the mud run, and I think it's a fantastic event for Dubbo. But they also focus, as a Stampede does, on putting money that they make back into the community. So some of the facilities you see along the Track O'Reilly Cycleway are being paid for by these community events. So they're really out there trying to make sure they run a good event, have lots of fun, promote whatever they're promoting, but also put some of that money back into the community. 
Yes. The, the, and, and the opportunity of, of Dubbo to host things like, I think we had the, well, I know, they had the, the Dubbo Winter Whiskey Festival, uh, which I did attend. And, and really just, again, that, that's the growth in, in a lot of our area, isn't it, with these craft beers and craft uh, spirits and craft distilleries. And uh, we have the opportunity now in Dubbo to, for it to host its own uh, Winter Whiskey Festival and uh, really just bringing people uh, to the city to broadening the appearance of the area. It's not just sport or it's not just uh, agriculture, but it's uh, not just culture. It's uh, a, a craft uh, distillery function. And you add on to that things like the Dream Festival, Dream Lantern Parade. And then one I'm going to throw in there is something that might sound like an event, but people do come along to it. There's the, what I call the Mayoral Developer Forums. And I started these way back when I was Mayor of Dubbo City Council to try and make sure that our staff and the development community and everyone involved in that were on the same page and understood what was happening. It's not about trying to get people off in the corner and hand over brown paper bags, which some people have said you don't put developers and staff in the same room, but, gee, they're not going to be that smart if they stay in the same room and hand over brown paper bags. But what's been really good about those, and we held two more of those again this year, has been that you get the developers to see the opportunities that are available in Dubbo and Wellington get to start thinking about that, you get other people in the room, there might be investors in the room, there might be some of the banks, for example, there might be uh, some of the architects or some of the people that are involved in the whole development industry and they see the opportunities there and I know when we've held those, people have travelled, there might be some Sydney developers or investors, they've travelled out just to hear what's happening and basically have some conversations with people and at the very last one, there was a real estate agent that stood up and said, I've had an approach from someone that needs 200 beds within a few months' time, how can I do that? And after the formal part of the evening finished, I saw that particular person swamped by a few developers because they <laughs> saw opportunities there. So that's what we need. We need to have these people talking with each other and make sure they continue on. Oh, and that's, I think, that uh, the Dubbo uh, a regional council uh, or any local government council should do. I mean, we are looking to develop our local areas and, uh, yes, we might undertake some of that development ourselves as a council, but really the the, the main uh, bang for the buck is uh, getting the developers to come along and, and uh, do the heavy lifting and so we really do have to work with them to ensure that that happens. Yeah, so that's just a few events. I'm not going to list off all the events we saw throughout the year but that gives you a bit of an idea of a few of those events. The next one I want to talk about is just some things that I would call community, and some of these are community events, but just things that happened in our community. So, for example, one that springs straight to mind is our Dubbo Day Awards, and that's something that's held on the 23rd of November each year. Dubbo was gazetted as a village, of course, on the 23rd of November, 1849, and that really gives us an idea of just the great people in our community that are there doing quiet work behind the scenes, and we get a chance once a year to recognise them. One of the things that we do do for that particular award day is we invite all the former councillors from both the old Wellingtonshire Council, the old Dubbo City Council and the Dubbo Regional Council to come along and be part of that day as well. And it's almost a bit of a nod to those people as well that, thank you, you've made a contribution in the past, you're not on council anymore, but you obviously went through a process many years ago, or sometimes not that long ago, and you helped contribute to where we are today. So it's a bit of a nod to them as well. But in the community, were there some things that grabbed your attention, Richard, this year that you thought were particularly important from an overall community perspective? 
Well, one of the, uh, again, from a local perspective, uh, the Stuart Town Arts uh, Residency uh, that's out there. Now, um, Stuart Town has uh, the old post office uh, that's been converted into a, a, a an area where uh, the local arts community can run a week-long uh, residence course and in sculpture or art or uh, some sort of uh, um, community development like that. And there's been a number of those uh, run through the year that have been really quite successful. And it's actually quite fascinating. I went out there and saw the final presentation for that particular event and one of the gentlemen there said that when he got out there and sat in that environment, he just heard a bird that he'd never heard before and he was fascinated with it. So he went out early in the morning, he sat near a tree and he actually wrote a song that used some of the sounds of this bird in the song and then tried to basically intertwine this bird into his song. And so he performed that song for us there. And I went, well, for someone that's been here for a week and he's done a whole range of things, including that, it was pretty impressive. So, again, people might know about Stuart Town. They might know about what's happening in these areas. But you get them out there and they experience that. That obviously gives them a pretty positive impression. The other one that I, I absolutely love is our new resident welcome evenings. So we had two of those throughout the year. And it is a chance for us just to say, thanks for coming. Thanks for moving from wherever you are. We run a few games at those events. And one of the games I love to play with them is to find out where they've come from. So who's moved from the furthest distance. And the other one, it was one of them was held, for example, just around in South Africa, was about to play Australia in the one-day International World yes. Cup. And so I actually put the hard word on him and I said, so you've come from South Africa, you've been here for a little while now, who are you supporting in the cricket? And it was being played that night, who are you supporting in the cricket that night? Now, it was pretty hard because he had 70 or 80 Aussies in front of him there, so <laughs> it was pretty hard for him to say, and the Australia, Australia. But this is the thing, we get people from a place 100 kilometres away or we get people from a place... 15,000 kilometres away. So it's a really positive evening and they love the fact that we take the time and effort to welcome people to our community. Yes. And look, it's a pretty daunting thing. Uh, you know, you move halfway across the world to establish a new life, a uh, new uh, work environment. And uh, d- just to know that when you come to an area, there's some welcoming uh, people there that people do recognise and appreciate the fact that you've taken the effort and the trouble to move and relocate. Uh, that's That really uh, is great from our local community. But I guess it's good that the uh, people moving in also realise that we as locals do appreciate what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice way to be welcoming to the community. So one of the things that could have been a bit controversial through the year from a council perspective was the voice. And I know some councils around the nation took a stance and they were out advocating for a yes vote. I don't know that I saw too many advocating for a no vote, but some took an official stance. Of course, we said we don't think it's appropriate for council to tell the community how to vote, but we still did get involved a little bit, Richard, with this. Yes, I think, and I think we, in hindsight, we picked it exactly uh, correctly. I think we had the uh, the right attitude, the right uh, uh, approach to it, and the main, I guess, the focus of uh, council's involvement was the uh, uh, the panel uh, forum. Uh, we got uh, two speakers for and two against, uh, and uh, had a, a public forum that was live uh, uh, streamed and uh, to talk about the issues. And I think that was exactly the right approach, not to say we are in favour or we are against. We are saying that here is the information which we're going to put out there to the public. Uh, we're helping you make a decision. And uh, and I think that uh, w- was very successful. And again, uh, it, it was the right thing to do. 
Yeah, and I think the good outcome from that, over, well, sorry, I'm not talking about the vote here, I'm just talking about from our perspective, it was a good forum. The forum was well run. The facilitator did a very good job in making sure that people stayed on focus or stayed on the topic. And I think it was a great chance for people to get more information out of that and hear where people were coming from from both sides. So I think you're right. I think we hit the nail on the head. And, and maybe that came partly because, again, as a council, uh, we have uh, 10 councillors, uh, two Indigenous uh, representatives on council, or councillors, who are really very effective in their uh, involvement with council. And I think that uh, so that really did set the scene for our very balanced and, and uh, uh, objective and approach to the whole voice issue. Mm, spot on. Now, the other thing that people talked a little bit about through the year was crime, and we are seeing crime stats go up across the state, across the nation, and I'm not going to try and speculate about why that might be, but people did ask council to get involved and solve the crime problem that we have in our particular city, and not that I think that our crime is absolutely worse than everywhere else across the state, and it's not horrendous, but again, it would be like, nice to see zero crime, of course, which is a bit unreasonable. We did get a little bit involved, but the challenge here, Richard, of course, is that we don't control the police, we don't control the magistrates, we don't control the sentencing, but it's our community. So we did get involved with a workshop, if you remember, we had the police come along and, and councillors, we held a, a community safety workshop. I do certainly meet with the command of the Iran Midwestern Police District on a regular basis, so that's Tim Chin at the moment, so I meet with him every quarter just to talk about whatever needs to be talked about. Uh, Brett Greentree, I also talk about who's a, a level above from a regional perspective, but your impressions around the policing, there was a bit of discussion throughout the year around this. I think that uh, look, we can always do, deal with uh, we can always do <laughs> with more police, uh, but I don't think that just increasing police numbers is the answer to uh, to any problems at all. I think the police do a pretty good job. Uh, that really it is a societal uh, issue, and uh, I think we have seen again through council uh, some pretty good involvement with uh, other players in the community. Uh, you know, be they PCYC, be they a uh, juvenile justice versus a uh, parole board versus um, uh, a whole lot of uh, e uh, community organisations too that are c c involved with uh, making our community better from a uh, crime point of view. And I think we have been effective behind the scenes in encouraging some of that development. And I think the thing that's spot on there that you said is behind the scenes. The last thing that I would want to do personally is be out there shouting from the treetops that we've got a terrible crime problem. I don't think council should be out there shouting that out because, again, the impact that would have on the morale of people in Dubbo and on visitation to Dubbo would be dramatic. I think working behind the scenes is the most important way to address any problems around that area. When you start to think about the number of different ways council is involved in the community, then I start to think about some other things we do. So, for example, we facilitated with the University of Sydney School of Rural Health a GP registrar's function. Now, this is not written in the Local Government Act anywhere, but is there a way we can get more doctors to stay in Dubbo? And this is one of those things that we thought, if we actually put on a function where we invite the registrars along while they're doing some time in Dubbo, just to say how important they are to Dubbo and to hear a bit of feedback from them, I thought that would be an important thing to do. So we did that, and I found that a, a very effective evening just to encourage those people to be a part of a regional area 
if not Dubbo, somewhere in a regional area. Yes, and that's just so important. I mean, we all know the GP shortage in uh, regional areas uh, is, is, is a very is a big issue. Uh, so in some ways, we, we as Dubbo Regional Council need to um, overcome that, uh, both from a regional perspective, but really from our own region. And by doing that, by meeting with the, the registrars and saying, look, we appreciate uh, what you're doing, we appreciate you here, we want to welcome you here, we want to realise that uh, and, and make you part of the absolute community. There's more chance that they'll stay here in their professional capacity after they uh, complete their training. The other one that I thought is a really good thing that we do is our community leaders meetings. So we hold these on a regular basis in Dubbo. We hold them with Dougald Saunders and Mark Colton as our state and federal representatives and obviously councillors and senior council staff. In Wellington, we hold them with Dougald Saunders again and Andrew G. He doesn't always believe in the concept, but he does come along occasionally to those. But if I take the Dubbo one, for example, it is unique in the nation. We've run those for a number of years and nowhere else in the nation have we been able to find where you get the three levels of government standing side by side in an open forum on a regular basis to just take any information, any feedback, any issues from the community. It is something that really says we are open to whatever you want to talk to us about and I think the community really appreciates those. Oh, they do. And again, it's one of the advantages of living in, in smaller communities, in, in regional communities, where, as you say, on a Saturday morning, you can stand on the uh, in a park or on the uh, street corner with the, the local, state and federal member and, and just meet and uh, discuss a whole lot of issues which are important to the, the local residents. To, to have that voice and have the opportunity to reach the three levels of government uh, is just fantastic and shouldn't be, uh, it shouldn't be uh, underappreciated. And one of the bits of feedback I heard, not from the last couple we did, but maybe earlier in the year, someone told me that they love the idea of it, they've never been to one, but they love the fact that they could go to yeah. one <laughs> if they wanted to, if they had a burning issue. And, of course, you can contact all three of us or all three of us of government anytime. You don't have to wait for one of those events. But sometimes people get a bit nervous about making a phone call or sending an email off, whereas if they can just come and talk to you on the street, they feel a bit more comfortable with that. So I, I'm a big supporter of those. The other one that, again, just that whole breadth of things we get involved with, NAIDOC activities. NAIDOC used to be called NAIDOC Week, but I think the activities end up going over a couple of months sometimes. <laughs> so NAIDOC, I think it's just referred to NAIDOC now. And the various activities, and I know I was involved in a few of them, and I know you are involved in a few of those different ones as well. But again, that's part of that whole inclusivity that we're trying to foster in our community. 15.6% of our population identifies Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders, so it is important that we do show that council is there to stand side by side. Oh, it, look, it is. Uh, I, I've uh, I've lived in Wellington now for 40 years, and when I stand and, and think and look back at, at the progress that we've made over that 40 years, and, and we really have, uh, we've got uh, much more inclusive uh, actions, we've got much more uh, involvement uh, with still a fair way to go we've still got a long way to go but I think that the progress that's been made uh, in that uh, integration if you like is just been uh, again something which should be commended. So just finishing off on a community probably long overdue but the water and sewer fees have now been harmonised between Dubbo and Wellington so if you're in our LGA you're paying the same for your water you're paying the same for the sewer fees across the whole LGA probably should have been done years ago but we've tidied up that one there and our tree preservation order we've got a tree preservation order now some people in the community would say it's not good enough and so we've been doing a fair bit of work getting a lot of feedback from the community around that tree preservation order the ultimate aim is to increase our tree canopy so that's still ticking away 
And the last one I want to mention was the possibility that we had around a special rate variation. We've got a situation with council where we're getting more and more costs imposed on the council, more cost shifting from the state government, probably not so much from the federal, mainly the state government, and more demand. The community expects more of council. In fact, I had an email just the other day that they were disappointed with how many Christmas decorations we had up. Why don't we have more Christmas decorations? Mm. I had to explain that we simply don't have the funds to be able to go and do everything that everyone wants. So we did talk about the potential for a special rate variation. In the end, we said, no, we won't go ahead with that this year. We'll look at it further, have some more communications with the community and really talk about, do you want to reduce services or do you want to increase your rates? There's not a lot of choices in between those two. Uh, except that uh, what we have done as part of that is also look at how we can make council run much more efficiently. Are uh, there some areas of our business which uh, we could be done a bit differently? And and I think uh, by focusing in on that before we, we say, yes, we absolutely need a rate rise, I think, again, is the right thing to do. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now, tourism, or it's probably more correctly called visitation. I want to focus on that a little bit now. If you look at the last year, we had approximately 1.259 million visitors to our LGA, injected approximately $450 million to our LGA. It is obviously important for our future, for the economic future we've got, and we like to see that external money come in. One of the real challenges was during COVID when there were some slightly relaxed relaxed restrictions, but not to the point where you could travel internationally, people in Sydney in particular started to discover regional areas. So some of our tourism actually went quite well. We we probably look, when we look at our comparisons with tourism, we probably look back before COVID-19 to get a true indication of how tourism is going. And so we are at the point now where we've got most of our tourism levels at higher levels than before COVID-19 came along. So that's a positive for a start. Yes, that's uh, it's great. And and we have got some great tourism uh, facilities within our LGA. Obviously, the, the uh, probably headed by the zoo, but uh, again, the, the, the whole lot of other areas from the old Dubbo Jail to the Wellington Caves to, uh, again, one of the jewel in the crown within the Dubbo region, I think, is, is the Western Plains uh, Cultural Centre. That really is a fantastic facility and it's uh, just with the cafe and with the exhibition areas and the permanent and, and uh, changeable displays, it really is something that uh, does attract a lot of visitors and quite rightly. Let me throw some numbers at you there. You, you talk about some of those things and some of the things that seem great and sound great. But when you put some numbers around them, you start to get a bit more of an idea of how much of an impact. The zoo, we don't own or run the zoo, so I can't give you deadly accurate numbers for that. But probably 300,000 is normally the minimum sort of numbers they get through the zoo. But when you look at some of our facilities, if you look at the Western Plains Cultural Centre that you mentioned, 142,597 people went through there this year. And when I say this year, I'm actually just doing a rolling 12 months because we're recording this podcast before the end of December, then I can't give you the full December figures. So I'm actually going from the 1st of December 2022 to the 30th of November 2023. So as close as I can to the calendar year, but really a rolling 12 months. So that's not too bad. And one of those exhibitions there that attracted a fair few people was the 
Archibald finalist exhibition, and I assume you got along to have a look at that. Yes, I did. I and in fact, didn't everyone? I think it was really uh, uh, fantastic that here in Dubbo we can go a, a convenient uh, location, easy to get to, uh, enjoyable while you're there to look at the finalists of the Archibald. And uh, actually, we had some friends from Tasmania uh, come through, and uh, they were actually coming from uh, the north. And I said, "Look, on the way through, uh, why don't you stop and have a look at the Archibald?" And they were absolutely blown away. They came, uh, they visited there, then came on to stay with us for, for a few days and, and were still talking about it at the end of their stay. Uh, <laughs> and that's just uh, an anecdotal uh, issue, but it really was a, f- a fantastic uh, uh, exhibition, it was. And it's not something you normally expect. Come out to a regional location to see the Archibald finalist exhibition. And I have conversations with a lot of taxi drivers in Sydney and I'm often talking to them about Dubbo and why they should move to Dubbo and tell all their friends to move to Dubbo. And I often point to that example where I say, I've seen the Archibald finalist exhibition three times in my life. All three times I've been in Dubbo. (laughs) So you don't really think about that when you're living in Sydney. We sold, most of the things at the Cultural Centre are free, but with the Archibald, we did actually sell tickets to that. So we sold 3,094 tickets to the Archibald wall that was here. Uh, Art Express was another thing I thought was quite good. That had 38 bodies of work by HSC students from the 2022 HSC. Mm. And I love seeing that. And we actually had some of the people, not many, but some of those people that created those artworks, some of those students were there at the exhibition. But Mm. to see what a year 12 student does with their artwork, I just found some of them absolutely Mm. incredible. Something you'd pay a lot of money for a world-famous artist, yet these kids were doing Year 12 projects with those. Yeah, and just following on too from that, uh, the the Art Express, the Art Fair, uh, which we ran through the year whereby uh, uh, any local artists could uh, f- uh, come along uh, over a, a weekend to exhibit their art free, uh, no commission charged uh, on any sale or hanging fees, and just to talk to all the artists that did exhibit there and talk to some of the people who went along just to to uh, view the art, it was just a fantastic facility. Dubbo has really found its culture, I think, and, and when I say Dubbo, Dubbo Regional Council has really found its culture, and we see more and more of those type of events. Let's go to the Old Dubbo Jail briefly. 47,270 visitors over the last year. Now, that includes the people that went along and got free entry to the jail, because if you live in Dubbo Regional Council LGA, you can be part of the inmates program. So you get into the jail for free, you get out for free as well, which is a good sign. <laughs> but that's one thing I think that not enough people know about, and I've been talking about it a fair bit lately, because the idea of that, and we started this program years ago, I remember when I said, can we see how many people from 2830, and this is back in the old Dubbo City Council days, go along to the jail? When well, we got the numbers back, it was minimal. So we said, we're not losing much income if we give them free entry, but we think we'll gain income because the VFR market, the visiting friends and relative market, is typically over 30% in our area. So you've got all these people coming along and visiting. If you say, hey, visitor of mine, let's go down to the jail, and I'm going to get in for free and my visitor pays, then I'm more likely to go and take people to that location. So that, that number, that 47,270, includes those free entries. But again, they would have only been a few thousand out of those. But I encourage people to go along because one of the great things is we've got new exhibits happening all the time and I opened one just the other day, or two exhibits actually, one called Life of Crime where we took portraits, or we didn't, Chris Animat, one of our staff there, took portraits from people that went through the jail system in New South Wales many years ago. We're talking back in the 1800s and 1900s and they typically had a photo taken each time they went into jail but you can imagine Back in those days, not a lot of other photos were taken. And you just get to see how that person Mm. aged, and they aged much more than their years would indicate. So that's a fascinating exhibition. The other one that I find fascinating is 
the gallows gallery. So all 32 people that were on death row at Old Dubbo Jail have had displays on the wall, and that's a, a display we changed some years ago. But now you've got a touchscreen, and you can go to any one of those 32, and you can look at their court records, newspaper clippings, more photos, any information we've been able to find about those 32 people is on there. So you can drill down and really get a lot of information about all those 32 just briefly, some of the things I love about the jail, it was open two years before Dubbo was gazetted as a village. So we had a jail before we actually had a village. <laughs> so 1847 it started. From 1877 to 1905 were when the eight people were hung on the gallows there, which is sad by today's standards, but that was what happened mm. in the day. So a lot of history there. What I also find fascinating is it was still a working jail in 1966. So there'd be many people in our community that would actually have been alive when that was a normal working jail. 1974, of course, it was opened up as a, a public jail or, or a tourism attraction. Mm. And so next year we celebrate our 50th anniversary of that. So that's a, a great yeah. one. And let's jump to Wellington now. 24,006 visitors to the Wellington Caves. Yes, that's, uh, uh, again, po- recovery from uh, post-COVID. Uh, that, again, is, is a fantastic facility. It's um, perhaps not uh, as good as it was when we had the phosphate mine open, uh, which has been closed since uh, because of flooding uh, through the, uh, the, the wet years. But, uh, again, the, the, the revamping that's gone on there, the development of the Cathedral Cave and the access, plus the uh, uh, display areas, the cafe and the whole surrounds is really worth uh, uh, a visit and, and obviously that uh, people are picking that up by those increased numbers. Now one that people don't always think about as a tourist attraction is our Dubbo Regional Theatre and Convention Centre. 74,906 visitors went through that in the last year and Almost 30% of those were tickets sold outside mm. the 2830 postcode. Yeah, look, isn't it? it? Again, it is a fantastic facility. Again, some architects and uh, are very clever people, but who, the design of that whole uh, facility is really good. It's it's uh, it's small, it's intimate, uh, but yet, it, 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 it well, it seems to be small and intimate, yet it does seat uh, a, a large number of people, and I think that is a, a really good, clever uh, combination of something that really has got a good feel about it, but something that uh, where major events can be staged. And there is no bad seat. Sometimes people say to me, which is the best seat in the place? And mm. I say, there's no bad seat. You've got great mm. sight lines and great audio, no matter where you sit there. The most popular show throughout the year was one called Possum Magic. They had five shows of that and sold 2,136 tickets. So it is used by lots of different people. And the variety of shows, it might be ballet, it might be philharmonic orchestras, it might be comedy festivals, a whole range of different shows come along there. And I think the uh, the organisers of that, the ones who, who, who set the programs well ahead, uh, should be commended because, again, as I say, it's a fantastic facility, but it's only as good as the programs and the events which are uh, held there, and they uh, generally are absolutely first rate. Yeah, spot on. And just to finish off on tourism or visitation, we printed a new visitor guide this year. 107 local partners helped pay for that, so that cost the Dubbo community nothing that was all paid for by the sponsors in there we've printed 150,000 of those visitor guides and they've been sent out to 160 visit information centers mainly across the state some have gone up to Queensland and down to Victoria as well but that's a, another good way to keep that information out there and keep people with it in their homes we've delivered it to every or we haven't done it yet but we will deliver it to every household in the Dubbo Regional Council LG as well again for that VFR market. We've talked a little bit about 
culture there. Dubbo used to have a reputation as being very much a sporting community. We've added culture to that, but I don't think we've lost our sporting heritage either. One of the things that I joked about just the other day was that I feel like I've finished the year the same way I started the year because I was down at one of the cricket pitches during the week and I was tossing the coin because we've got the Cricket New South Wales Youth Championships for under 13, 14 and 15 boys being held in Dubbo at the moment. At the beginning of the year, I was tossing the coin for the Cricket New South Wales State Challenge for under 14 boys and under 15 girls. So in terms of sport, and I'm talking about sporting events here now, we do get a lot of sporting events that come through Dubbo and really take advantage of the sporting fields that we've got. Yes, and, and, and for very good reason. Again, Dubbo's, uh, uh, it's central. It really is central to a whole lot of, uh, the new, not just New South Wales, but to southern Queensland and even into Victoria and South Australia. And so that really is a convenient place to get to and coupled with the fact fantastic facilities that we've got does mean that it, it, it's uh, the logical place to hold some of these events and perhaps we could start with the uh, uh, the New South Wales uh, Junior Touch State Cup um, uh, which is held uh, was held uh, earlier this year but was now secured at 4, 24, 25 and 26 and that's a great event. And talk about tourism and visitation, that brought approximately 7,000 people to Dubbo. And I walked around and had a look at some of the games and talked to some of the organisers. And some of the, the random people that came up to talk to me, I had my mayor badge on, and they, they came over to talk to the mayor and they said, wow, these grounds are great. Who prepared them for you? Or did you bring these grounds in? There were a whole range of different questions. People didn't realise that these are our normal grounds prepared by our staff on a day-to-day basis. So well done to our staff for the great preparation there. Can I just add a little story there? A couple of years ago, uh, friends of ours, uh, were um, their son was going away to school in Sydney to go to boarding school and uh, they went down for the interview and the headmaster said to them, uh, oh, of course, when he, uh, your son likes cricket. Oh, yes, he's a very good cricketer. Well, of course, when he comes down here, uh, he'll be able to play on uh, turf pitches. <laughs> and they looked at one of those in Wellington. He's been playing on turf pitches through primary school for the last seven years. Yeah, that's right. And people don't realise what we've got out here. In fact, when I was speaking to the CEO of Cricket New South Wales at the Toyn Cost I did the other day, one of the things that he mentioned was just how many turf pitches we've got, but more to the point, how they are in such close proximity. So it means that parents and kids can get from game to game very easily. The organisers, anyone that's running the event can make sure they can get around those different grounds. So Mm -hmm. when we look at some of these events, just very briefly, if I look at athletics, we've got our international standard athletics field there, of course. We've had Little Athletics New South Wales Combined Carnival this year. We've had the New South Wales Region 3 Carnival. The Country Athletic Championships have been held here. And that's in addition to all the different schools that use that for their normal school carnivals. What a wonderful facility they've got there for their normal school carnivals. Yes, and I'm told uh, that really it is absolutely recognised as being first rate amongst the schools and uh, so much so that uh, uh, it'll continue to be because we've uh, in the process of uh, a resurfacing program there at uh, or planned a resurfacing program at Barton Park. And you're spot on there. One of the things that's a real challenge for our staff is to work out when they can fit that in because it's such a busy program. We also had Athletics New South Wales Country Championships this year. Cooman State Combined Athletics Carnival is held there this year. So it is well utilised and utilised constantly, especially through those second and third terms when a lot of those schools are using it. Mm-hmm. We also had the New South Wales Junior Rugby Club Championships were held in Dubbo, taking advantage of some of our rugby fields. Swimming New South Wales Country Regional Meeting was held in Dubbo, taking advantage of our swimming yeah. pool there. Can I just add too, uh, to those, uh, I, I uh, attended a couple of the bowls championships, the New South Wales Bowls Championships that, that attract bowlers, again, right from 
from out throughout New South Wales, and that's a major event uh, held uh, between uh, West Dubbo and, uh, and Macquarie uh, Bowls, and it's just it, it is really good for the community. Yeah, so State Pennant Bowls Finals was one of those events that you would have gone along to, and there were a couple of events there. And on the back of that, the Bowls New South Wales State Championships have been secured for three of the next five years. So we're getting those events in 2024, 26 and 28. And that's the first time they've ever taken the state championships to a regional location. Mm. So that's a, a real feather in our cap. But also, it's a feather in the cap of the people who have organised those other bowls events, so some of the other clubs that are doing those at the moment. Because I think on the back of those, they saw that we could actually run an event of this sort of magnitude out in a regional area. So it's a really good thing for our sporting fields and really good nod to our staff to keep preparing these great sporting fields. But again, it keeps adding to that overall tourism. I want to move now on to a bit of culture and probably culture and the environment, I'd probably call this one. And when I look at that, the first thing I'd look at is Australia Day ceremonies in 2023. Now, we made some decisions at the end of 2022 that were a little bit controversial in our community, and I don't mind something being controversial. If we discuss things at council, we go through the various differences and different things we might be able to plan and and do, and then we come up with a decision, again, democratic process, and we go forward with that. If there's a bit of controversy, well... That's okay, as long as we think we're doing the right thing by the community. And I think that's exactly what happened with Australia Day. So what were your impressions of our Australia Day decision from last year leading into 2023? Yes, I, well, I was uh, in favour of it. And I think uh, the uh, in favour of the move of having uh, the Australia Day ceremony uh, to the eve, to the to the evening of uh, the 25th of January. Now, that did uh, uh, attract a fair, uh, some controversy within the community. Some people were against it. They want the traditional Australia Day ceremony to be held on Australia Day. Uh, our feeling was that we were still honouring Australia Day. Australia Day was still the date uh, that, uh, th- that we should recognise. But just the ceremony, to have it on the eve, uh, uh, aimed at making it a little bit more inclusive. Obviously, the 26th of January is not such a, a day to celebrate uh, from some of our Indigenous people. I think it's an important date that they should recognise, and so I'm very much against uh, moving the date. I think the 26th of January is uh, very important for a whole host of reasons, and and I think that generally the the community did come along with us. Uh, Wellington and uh, 26th of January 23 uh, had uh, a, a greater attendance than uh, that had been uh, occurred in many uh, recent years. Um, and again, the feeling and the and the the, uh, the feedback that we got from the community was uh, generally very supportive. I think you're absolutely spot on, and it is interesting when you want to change anything. People are sometimes against things just for the sake of being against change, I think, sometimes. So that was an important one. The other thing we did, well, sorry, let's go back a step there. We initially, when we started those discussions, wanted to have both Dubbo and Wellington as a twilight event. And, of course, we hit a bit of a brick wall called the federal government. And so we went through and had that discussion. I remember over many months I went back and forth with the federal government and in the end we had the potential that we could have lost our ability to confer citizenship on our citizens in the Deborah Regional Council area if we went ahead and changed the date of the – didn't say change the date, did I? Changed yeah, it did. to a twilight event <laughs> for the Dubbo Australia Day event. Wellington was a bit different because they had less than 20 conferees through the year. That was all very interesting during that whole process. We finally made the decision, as you said, to go ahead with a twilight event in Wellington. And it wasn't long after that 
that Andrew Giles, the minister, made a change to the citizenship ceremonies code and you then had a window before or after the 26th where you could hold that event. So that was, I think, on the back of our council and other councils as well that were trying to change to have the event on a slightly different date. So that was interesting, I thought. But the other thing we added then to both the Dubbo and Wellington ceremonies, because Dubbo was held on the 26th, was rather than have traditionally the ambassador speaks at the event, we've also got council would speak. So, for example, I would speak in Dubbo and, and you spoke in Wellington. That was usually the it for formal speeches before the awards were given out. But we added an Aboriginal speaker, not a welcome to country, that was standard as well, but an Aboriginal speaker who spoke about some of the context of that 60,000 years of their history. And we added that to both Dubbo and Wellington. I think that went down very well. Yes, it did. Uh, again, from a Wellington perspective, uh, uh, the um, Uncle Joe Daly spoke uh, uh, as the ambassador, uh, Ambr- Indigenous ambassador, and spoke very well, just outlined his life and uh, the uh, some of the pluses and the minuses, uh, and really he related very well uh, to the whole community and, and, and there was a much appreciation of, of what he had to say. So Dubbo and Wellington are running with the same concept for 2024, although we've changed the time slightly, pushed back the Wellington start time by an hour, so it's 6.30 now for 2024 on the 25th of January, 6.30pm, and Dubbo's going to start half an hour earlier. We're starting at 8am on the 26th of January. Again, I think the logic from councillors was it worked well for 2023. Let's stick with it for 2024. And certainly having that uh, the, the split dates, if you like, between Wellington and Dubbo is very good because uh, uh, it, w- it was fantastic uh, that we did uh, in Wellington. Uh, most of the Dubbo councillors came down and, uh, and vice versa. So uh, I think that was uh, just a great way of uh, coordinating and cooperating between those two areas. Yeah, spot on. Now, the other thing, talking about culture, is... There are different events that we have throughout the year. Oroscon does a fantastic job in organising some of those events, but it's not just Oroscon. But I know one of the events I went to was the Holy Mellor Festival of Colours. And that's Mm. traditionally, from my understanding, from learning about it on the day, a Nepalese festival, but it's probably celebrated in some parts of India as well. But this is one of the great things that we're getting as we get this multicultural community, as we're getting more people from the Asian subcontinent, we're learning about these things. Oh, and isn't it fantastic that we've got in this local area? I, I went along to the Oriscon uh, um, evening, uh, the, their major event last year, uh, sort of big pardon, earlier this year, um, and made the comment there that look, here we've got a whole lot of people from the Indian and uh, uh, subcontinent areas, uh, Pakistanis and Indians, all in together, laughing, joking, friendly. Um, that's not what happens at a national level amongst their country and. Uh, <laughs> the fact that here in Dubbo we've got this melting pot of uh, of, uh, of cultures and uh, nationalities where everyone is getting along in a very harmonious fashion, that, that really is terrific and it really should be celebrated. We are learning a whole range of things. Diwali Festival is another one that we saw some celebrations around Diwali, which is very much like a, an Indian version of Christmas, if you like. And you also had the Oroscon Cross-Cultural Carnivali. Again, I could list many, many of those different ones, but it's just learning about those different cultures. The other one that I thought was just a brief mention, and this is where council can not necessarily be involved in things that are outside our remit, but be somewhat influential in some of those areas, we have asked the Transport for New South Wales to repatriate the axe-grinding groove rock from Rotary Park, where they'll be putting a bridge through there, to Terramunga Mine Reserve. And again, that hasn't happened yet, but that's one of those things that we, it's not up to us to do it, it's up to the state government who are doing that 
bridge, the New Dubbo Bridge Project, but just our influence in there, we can make suggestions, and we probably can't make them do it, but they're probably going to listen to council when they make when we make those sort of suggestions. Oh, not only will they listen, I think if council asks, they, they'll be bend over backwards to uh, to uh, facilitate that, and, and that seems to be what's happening, which is great. And if I move... Further on from that culture and environment, some of the things from an environmental perspective, our net zero framework's been adopted and we learned a lot about the climate perspective of council and how we're contributing to potential climate change and how we might make some changes there. So I think that was an important document. But the other one that I thought was a, a nation-leading document and certainly it's been spe- uh, shared with a number of different government agencies was our policy that allows our staff to have an EV as their staff car, even though it might be dearer. And of course, the first thing that our residents would say is, oh no, you don't want to be spending more money, you're trying to save as much money as possible. But our fleet manager prepared an excellent report that actually looked at the real cost of our staff vehicles, taking into account the purchase price, the running costs, and then the resale value, and found that in fact, some of those EVs that have got a dearer purchase price have got a four-year total cost of ownership that's cheaper than some of those petrol cars. So I think that was a really positive move. Yes, and and again, it's another area where council is being innovative and uh, and saying, okay, let's uh, think about what uh, where, where we want to be in the future and let's start to move towards that way now. And that ties in with the, the item you mentioned earlier with the EV charging stations in Wellington, for example. So I think that is really important. So when people do see some of our staff driving around in Teslas, which they will see, then actually think to yourself, not that that's an expensive car, but that's actually saving council money. One other thing that was an interesting one was the bus route expansion, which is obviously part of this whole process is to help the environment. So you've got fewer people using cars, more people using buses. The state government was doing this as part of their 16-city buses program. We got caught in the middle of that a little bit because they were introducing more buses. They put out a range of bus stops. That came to council... And we kind of went, well, what do we do with this? Can we say no? Well, if you do, the state government can overrule you. Do we say yes? Well, some of our residents aren't happy about where they're going. We were kind of stuck in the middle of that one. And it seemed to be that we no one quite knew exactly what the role of council was. Could we veto them or could we make a suggestion or did we have to accept ultimately what they said? And uh, it was a little bit uh, the jury was out on that, uh, which of those three options we, we really sat under. And I think Transport for New South Wales wanted to work with us, but again, if push came to shove, could we have said no or would they have just said, sorry, we're the state government, we'll do what we like? The last one that I want to mention from a culture perspective is I did go over to Japan at the beginning of December and I would call this a, a culture and learning exchange. I led a delegation of local government representatives from Australia and New Zealand. There were five of us in the delegation and we went to Japan, went to Tokyo first of all to learn a bit about their local government system there and then we went to a small place called Kahuku Town and we spent a few days there touring the facilities, learning about what they had and also sharing with them some of our ideas. So that cultural exchange can be with our Aboriginal people, 60,000 years of history, can be some people from the Asian subcontinent or it can be with Japan and going over and sharing some of these ideas. One thing I found that was fascinating out of that trip, lots of learnings out of it, but the, the number one thing that struck me almost immediately was when we had a lecture from a university professor there on our first day there, they kept talking about financial sustainability was the number one issue for local government in Japan and that resonated very well with all five of us sitting in the room. We are in a global village.
Maybe I should have done this as a two-part series, Richard, because we're trying to do a brief summary of the year and there's so much that happens and so many things that councils involve with throughout the year. It's hard to summarise it all down to an hour-ish of a podcast. So Yeah, it really is interesting when you start to think, oh, okay, we're going to do the podcast. What sort of things do we talk about? Oh, my goodness. And then you think, oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're going for – there really has been a lot. It's been an exciting year. And I think one of the things that people don't realise is how many things that council is involved with. That's the thing mm. that constantly amazes people that there are so many different facets that council is involved with in the community. So I'll finish off now with a few that I would call our other category, ones that I maybe couldn't fit into anywhere else, and just a few ones to finish off on there. The first one we've got to talk about is we are always trying to see how we can make ourselves more efficient and look at where we can save money. One of the things we looked at was the fact that our swimming pools used to be managed externally, certainly in Dubbo were managed externally. They were brought back internally and we analysed internal versus external, how much it might cost us to go back external. And so we, as councillors, said, we think we can save the community money by going back external. And it wasn't just $5. It was a significant amount of money that we could save, we believe. And so we went out and put that out to expressions of interest. We got uh, various ones that came in. We awarded that to Belgravia Leisure. And I think it's fair to say it hasn't gone perfectly. It has been a bit of a rocky start, it if you has. have a rocky start in a swimming pool. But uh, yes, it has. And and, and look, uh, the decision to outsource the, the management, I think, was the right decision. I mean, managing a swimming pool is a very uh, specialised technical area. And uh, you, you would hope that uh, a company or an organisation with absolute expertise in that should be able to do it more effectively and more efficiently than, uh, than can council. I think that's absolutely the logic. And so I would say to residents, yes, it hasn't gone perfectly. Don't think it was a bad decision because it hasn't gone perfectly. You don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm with you. It was the right decision by council. The bottom line said that. And when you look at Belgravia Leisure, they manage over 220 venues in Mm. Australia and New Zealand. So you probably think that they do know how to do it. And for whatever reason, it hasn't gone perfectly here. We're working on getting that right. It's a contract that we've got with them. Sure, if they don't deliver on that contract, we could break that contract. But at this stage, we're still backing them and working with them to deliver the right outcomes. And, and I think, it, as we sit here now, the challenge for council and, and the uh, measure of success of the council is, is how we manage that uh, an initial rocky period. If we can overcome the issues there that were apparent and that uh, from the rest of the season forward, uh, the whole thing is managed and goes well, then I think council was vindicated. And I think the key there is probably around communication. It's always important. In a business perspective, if things go good or go bad, communicating with your customers is important. I think that's an issue there. One of the other ones that happened during the year, which was a a bit of debate about this, and it went back and forth a little bit, and we ended up with a final decision, was the Macquarie Conservatorium of Music, which is a very important facility in Dubbo. Mm -hmm. Council agreed to give them essentially a peppercorn rent on a council-owned building for a period of time, and that was really to make sure we knew that we could hold on to the Macquarie Conservatorium and keep them in our community as a very important part of it. It is a, such an important part of it. We mentioned earlier, talked about the Western Plains Cultural Centre and uh, and how important the whole cultural development is to the Dubbo region. Uh, we, yes, sport's very important, but culture increasingly is becoming important and the conservatorium is an absolutely an integral part of that cultural development. Now, one I know that's near and dear to your heart because you brought forward the notice of motion in relation to this one is the REACT Centre, standing for the Renewable Energy Awareness and Career Training Centre. 
Now, that business case is going on. We haven't got that business case back yet. I'm sure we're going to get a first draft of it before the end of the year. But that's something I think is one of those things that we've talked about leaving a legacy mm. for the Wellington community in particular from a renewable energy zone. And that's one I think that absolutely can do that. Uh, uh, yes, it certainly can. Some uh, f- form of centre that can be used for training, tourism, education, uh, and uh, the uh, to really uh, be part of the community is just so important. And it's interesting, uh, yes, we as a council have raised that uh, need for the business case, but already it's been picked up by uh, the state government. Uh, Regional New South Wales are looking at it and have engaged with a whole lot of the other players who would be instrumental in making that uh, centre come to fruition. So I think... I think, uh, yes, it's it's already got a lot of momentum. I love the fact that I've talked to various state and federal people, I'm talking about uh, from the government, uh, sometimes ministers, sometimes their staff, but when they start quoting back to me, we initially used to call it a REAC, R-E-A-C, but it's now grown up to be a REAC centre, but when they start quoting back to me about this REAC in Dubbo, and I've actually got one letter from one of the ministers talking about this REAC in Dubbo, I've gone, great, we've been building this and getting a bit of momentum behind it, when they start quoting it back to us, I think that's pretty exciting. The the last one I want to talk about before I hit you with some numbers is the South Dubbo Bridge Workshop. So again, we've talked about a lot at council, workshops don't make decisions, but workshops are really important to give us enough information to be able to make those decisions. Now, for our future transport strategy in Dubbo, getting a further bridge in South Dubbo, somewhere south of the LH Ford Bridge, is vital to our long-term transport needs. But getting that right is pretty important as well. Yeah, and absolutely, you're spot on. But again, I think in doing that, what Dubbo also needs to do is to be have a dedicated or a long-term plan for a bypass. Because if we're going to have a bridge down there that just leads off the existing highway, I don't think that's the answer. But no. we certainly need the bridge, but we also need to integrate that with a, a bypass around Dubbo. Dubbo is certainly growing. We know we've got a good growth rate. The res will continue to accelerate that. We, we think we've got a need for about 6,000 workers over the next 10 years or probably less than that actually, apart from our normal growth rate. So it's going to keep happening. So before we finish, I want to hit you with some numbers. And we talk about the different facilities that council's involved with in our Dubbo regional livestock markets. In the last year, we've had 1.331872 head of cattle sold through there. And that one, most of these figures are 1st of December last year to 30th of November this year, as I mentioned before. That one is actually a calendar year because there's no more sales this year. So 1.3 million head of cattle and sheep and probably a few goats in there as well have gone through the sale yards this year. That's good, isn't it? And, and I know that there's a figure that you're about to quote, which is in some ways a little bit disappointing to you because you wanted the uh, Dubbo Regional Airport to record over 200,000 uh, uh, passengers over the last 12 months. And I think we don't quite get there. Very close, but not quite to the 200,000. You're right. I remember many years ago before COVID when we did finally crack the 200,000, it was very exciting. that That was a, a big milestone for us. And you're right, we're not quite there yet in the rolling last 12 months 192,010 passengers but I'm pretty confident for this financial year we're in looking at how those numbers have increased over the last few months I'm pretty confident that we're going to crack the 200,000 in this financial year which is another nice milestone then you look at the library this is Macquarie Regional Library of course and it is one of our well utilized facilities in the last rolling 12 months we have loaned out 2.5 
266,356 items. And when I say items, it's not just books because you can actually borrow things like audio books now. So there are other things you can borrow besides books, but that's a pretty big number, isn't it? Oh, it is. I mean, that's it's, it's getting up towards what, uh, you know, it's not quite a thousand a day, obviously, but uh, well, it, it certainly is more than a thousand a day for every day that the library's open. And that's fan, fan, fantastic. And the last one I want to hit you with is sometimes people tell me that they contact a council via some method, whether it be a phone call or send an email or send a letter, and they people sometimes aren't happy about the response time. And that's something we'll keep working on and trying to keep that response time at the appropriate time frames. But to give you an idea of the sort of volume you've got, the customer service requests that we've had over the last year, and again, this is everything. This is counter-inquiries, emails, phone calls, etc. 36,143. So again, taking that slight approximation there, it's basically not far away from every person that lives here contacting council once throughout the year. And you could probably say quite easily every adult that lives here contacting council once throughout the year. So for even though sometimes it is frustrating when it takes a bit of time for people to come back to you or the answer may be a bit slower than you'd like, there's a lot of requests that come through that our staff are dealing with and we don't want to be overstaffed because that costs us more money. No, we don't want to be overstaffed but at the same time, you know, the, the interrelationship with between the council staff and the community is just so important and so that uh, we really do want to make that um, uh, contact seamless and we want to make it effective. So, uh, And I think we're working on that and it, it is improving. Yeah, spot on. Right, now, look, really, I think that's enough time for us now, probably all the time we've got for our listeners to tune in for the year. We would probably go for another same length of time again. There are so many things that have happened in the year. But thank you for the great work you've done as Deputy Mayor throughout the year. And I think you do do a great job across the whole LGA. But I know in Wellington in particular, whenever I go down there and see you down there, you're very well respected and well regarded in the Wellington community. I'm sure you are in Dubbo as well. But I see the direct evidence in Wellington. So thank you for your great work you do there. And obviously, Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas to your family. And to all of our listeners, Merry Christmas as well. Thank you for tuning in throughout the year. Thanks, Matt, and well done for this uh, podcast. It's uh, well listened to and it's uh, of great value. Thank you. Straight from the Mayor's Mouth with Matthew Dickerson from Dubbo Regional Council.